conversations and meditations. With Justin Martin. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations, dear friends. I'm Justin Martin and I'm so excited that you've joined me for this offering. We're going to get to meet some of the most interesting and heart-focused people that I know during these conversations. The intention of this podcast is for us to discover and share the histories, beliefs and practices of the beautiful souls that I'm fortunate enough to call friends. So settle in, slow it down and let's get started. G'day Shane, how are you? Um, good, thanks. Justin, and you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, it's been an unusual day for me, kind of uh, not the usual admin type stuff I've been doing. I've been putting my hand to putting a new door lock and bits and pieces like that, just to give myself a bit of a break, actually. Great. Well, so. yeah, thanks for doing the restored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some teamwork makes, makes the dream work. It does. That's true. <laughs> So um, I should probably let everybody know that this isn't the first time we've done a podcast, though this will be the first time they'll have heard you on one of our podcasts. Uh, for whatever reason, we, we had a, an awesome conversation, maybe must be three months ago now, mm-hmm. close to, uh, but for whatever reason, the, the digital gods decided that it was a corrupted file and it was no good to us, unfortunately. So thank you for coming back to revisit this opportunity and... Uh, I'm sure we might touch on some similar subjects that we spoke about previously, uh, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Not too sure. Well, thank you. I look forward to seeing where we go. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I guess we might as well start off with the here and now. Would you mind telling everyone a little bit about, you know, you're, you're here at Riverdale now. You've been staying with us for about seven weeks. I can see it's gone quick. Yeah, it's, it's gone fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just on the weekend, yourself and Christine Spencer put on uh, Introduction to Attunement. How did that go? That went really well. We had um, six um, participants. Attunement is a form of energy work. Yes. And we did an introduction to that. It was fantastic. It was very serendipitous the way people found us. Some people said, oh, three months ago somebody said they'd like to do something with attunement. And I just happened to keep forgetting to ask for her name. And then eventually I... Wednesday night, I asked her for her name and phoned her on Thursday morning. And by that afternoon, she'd booked in for the Saturday, follow, uh, the coming Saturday. So, uh-huh. so little things like that happened all up to the lead up to the attunement. And then during the day, it was a beautiful day. It was, um, I, I've facilitated a lot of programs in the past, but this one had a different energy to it. And I actually think there's something in the wind that's changing in people's hearts and minds relative to, you know, how we relate to each other, what we understand, how we affect our world. I think all of that's going through a, I don't want to say a metamorphosis, that's the word that comes to mind, but there is a change happening on the planet and we're all part of it. Saturday was very much an integral part of that and, yeah, just a high excitement in the room when people walked in, they commented on it. And a lot of people ask questions during the day. In the past, when I've facilitated, people asking questions is like, oh, okay, what are we going to do with that question? This was such a flow. People's questions dovetailed into how we were looking at attunement and their understanding of, of life. And so it was a very co-creative and productive day. Oh, That's wonderful. how I'd put it, yeah. And th- that space worked well. You were in the dining room. 
Yeah, the dining room space worked beautifully uh-huh. because we were able to split the room and use the front half of the room for uh, the theory, which we went through in the morning, and we had some um, videos to show on the endocrine system and different things. So that worked really well. And right. then the back half, we had it set up for practice, and we ran through practical training in the afternoon. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So you, your experience with attunement spans back a number of decades? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, about four. Um, my first attunement that I'd shared, actually I had shared more than that because I did a, with the organisation that is part of this property, the Emissaries of Divine Light, I came across them back in 1979 and did some classes where attunement was used. But And then when I did a two-month class in Canada, so we did a two-month class on one of the emissary communities, theory in the morning, practice in the afternoon, put sure. into practice what you learn in the morning stuff. And then I went down to, to a Sunrise Ranch, which is in Colorado in the States, and shared a, an attunement in the old... Um, building that was originally built by the man who was the in- initiator of the Emissaries of Divine Light, a man called Lloyd Meeker, or his pen name was Yoranda. The building that he'd built back in the 50s, early 50s, was still standing back in those days. It's right. been refurb- revamped now. Beautiful old rough-hewn beams in the ceilings and all that. So I first shared an attunement in there with a couple of people, actually, and it was a very powerful experience. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's the first time it was as potent as it was for me. Do you mind if I ask, can you speak a bit more about what that experience was? So attunement works with the vital essence that's part of everybody. The opportunity in attunement is to work with another person so that the mechanism in the human body, the physical component, is open and receptive to allowing that vital essence to flow through. And the idea behind that is there's a natural healing that can happen through that process in an individual. There's a collective current that's emanating into that goes out into the world. And, yeah, for me, I guess I was more in my baby stages back then of attunement the first time. I had somebody working through the feet, so on the bottom of the, on the foot, there is a replicated patterning of the body, so all the glands and all the organs are, and reflexology is a, you know, working through people's feet shows that. So I had somebody in the, uh, in the sanctuary, they call it, working on my feet, and then somebody also working through the body from the head and going down through the body, through the endocrine system. And they both both worked in unison. I, and, you know, it's hard to kind of... All I know is I walked out of that building and I was just totally overwhelmed and crying. Oh, wow. And maybe, you know, I can start to look back and say, okay, it was this, this and this. But mm-hmm. at the time I didn't really know and I just know that it was a very powerful process and maybe it just opened some of the channels that were blocked and that's how I could interpret it now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, potent experience. Yeah. So now, now that we're on the topic, I'm fascinated. So sorry <laughs> for skipping around a little bit. but That's okay. When For people who don't know, and I, I do count myself to be one of those, um, you say working on or working through, 
what's actually occurring there? Okay, so... Because, yeah, if, in my mind, if someone said I was working on their back or something, I would anticipate some physical manipulation or something of that nature, but yeah. that's not the case with attunement. No, I can give a bit of history now that I've just done an introduction to attunement. Sure, well, since we're here... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Uranda or Lloyd Meeker was born back in the early 1900s and left home early, very poor, etc., and worked in different places around um, the States. He was a bit of an, a traveller, I guess, an itinerant traveller in some ways. But anyway, he did stay in certain places and built up his capacity to work his way through levels of to managerial status because he was so good at what he was doing. It's just a natural inclination to do the best of what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And then in September 1937, should correct that if I'm wrong, I'll let you know. That's okay. <laughs> he had a three days of a vision and he'd, he'd looked like it's easy to tell that he'd read the literature of the day that was spiritual literature, Alice, yeah. Alice Bailey, um, Blavatsky, Rudolf Steiner, who were some of the American ones? There were quite a few of American ones as well. Casey. Um, anyway, he's obviously, he read this because he was looking for something in his life. And then he had this three-day... Someone correct me if you ever get to listen to this, but, <laughs> I mean, to me it was channeling. He was virtually channeling something from a, a higher source, let's say, um, through his own capacities. And he wrote it all down, stayed up and wrote the whole thing down. It became a book called The Divine Design. So what he did was he had a strong connection with chiropractors back in America at the time. And they were working, there was a small group of them um, called the God Patient, uh, G God GCP, God Chiropractor, no, God Chiropractor Patient, yep. they call themselves. And what they did, this is without Yoranda knowing about, well, no, actually Yoranda, when I read the literature, he did know about this, but they didn't know about him at the time. Uh -huh. And what happened with these chiropractors is they were starting to see that they could do a, a no-forced adjustment on people by using the energy from their hands and they didn't actually have to put their hands on the um, patient. They could actually work with the energy through them and through the patient to allow adjustments to happen in the body. And this is like, you know, revolutionary really back then. It kind of seems not such a big deal what, now. What made them make that assumption? What made them come to the conclusion that they were playing a part in that? Like what? why didn't they come to the possibly more obvious conclusion that the body was healing itself? Well, the, I think their body was healing itself, but because they were a conduit in the system of, what, of the healing process for that person, they could see that their, somehow this vital essence that we talked about initially was being radiated through them and through the body of the person who's the patient. So it was a combined thing. It's like the chiropractor couldn't have done it without the patient, and the patient couldn't have done it without the chiropractor. That's the bit that's catching me. I, I know. Like, why is it, well, the chiropractors, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the logical question from my perspective. It's like, well. 
Yeah. What makes a chiropractor so sure that the patient couldn't have done it without the chiropractor? Yeah. I guess time, because they kept doing it for a long time and kept having really good results. So it would have been over a period of time that they sure. they realised that they were an integral part of the process for the patient. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. But in GCP, you've got chiropractor, God, chiropractor, patient. I mean, maybe, I don't know, the states might have been hugely religious or biblical or whatever at the time because God was put first in their um, group that they started, the the GCP group. Uh So obviously... I think a lot of the state still is. Oh, yeah, a huge proportion. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. It is. I would like to read more about it, actually. It kind of caught my interest after I started doing that. I wanted to give people on Saturday, give people an opportunity to see that vibrational medicine, let's call it for another word if you want to, but has been around since 2000 BC. They've Uh documented. So I went through and just looked at all the different eras. Energy work hasn't been acknowledged. And not just that, but understanding that there is a vital essence in all human beings. And if that's out of kilter or not in the flow, let's say, then there there can tend to be disease or... Well, dis-ease in the, yes. in the human body. Yep. Yeah. Ah, cool. And so that, that was the, the exploration over the weekend was obviously the topic of that and then there's some practical application of, of that knowledge. Yeah. So, we, so how, how it developed through Yuranda after he came in touch with the chiropractors, he started to um, work with the endocrine system with the chiropractors as well. And the endocrine system is the major hormonal system in the body which you know this was fascinating in our whole lifetime we use minuscule amount over a person's life of these hormones because they're so potent Uh and they're so interactive on the different glands these are ductless what they call ductless glands so it secretes the hormones into the bloodstream so it's an immediate effect and it has a a beautiful feedback system Mm -hmm. so it feeds it in and then it knows through the feedback loop when to stop it So turn the tap on, turn the tap off sort of thing. We have an amazing body. Anyway, so um, what Yuronda did was he started to look at this with the chiropractors and started to work through the endocrine system and use that as a stepping down process for this vital energy that comes into the body and um, use that as the attunement and called it attunement. That's where it all originated from. Yeah, wow. But the big aspect in all of that is an acknowledgement that there is something higher than ourselves where this energy emanates from. So we're a mechanism in the process in a sense and it comes into us as a vital force, which, as I said, was 2,000 years ago they were talking about the vital force in the human body. But he, when Yuranda did it, he just put it into a, a format that could be used for people. If you think about two people coming into agreement about something, well, you know this in a relationship. You know, the husband and the wife, they come into agreement over something and it gets a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in the same way, two people coming into agreement who are sharing attunement, then there's a much easier flow. The other thing that came into the chiropractic part of it was the cervicals, which are at the on the top of the spine yeah. and the atlas and the axis. So the atlas and the axis, if... If the body's in sync and everything's moving, and this was part of the chiropractic part that added to the attunement, there's an open 
channel really for the life energy to come through. If the atlas or the atlas is turned slightly, it's blocking that channel. So in attunement, we always start with using a balancing of the cervicals. And you can kind of sometimes if if you're attuned to it, and you don't have to, I mean, everybody feels different things in an attunement. There's a sensing of that. And sometimes you feel it in your own neck, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time as working with somebody. So when that's balanced in an alignment, then there's a clear flow of the energy through the system. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's maybe a symptom. And I'm just absolutely ad-libbing here. I've got no idea. <laughs> a, thought occur- cool. <laughs> a thought occurred to me. But, you know, like with all of these, uh, it's what's seemingly a... A condition of modern life is you know, mental mental health issues, yeah. um, physical health issues, and the propensity for the majority of people to be sitting at a desk, typically with a bad posture, and typically with their head forward, forward yeah, yeah, head thrust forward in that kind of arched back position. I wonder if that has some... I think you're right. I think that the way we live our lives, you know, I this is going to be a little off track, but... I don't believe in a five-day working week. I think a five-day working week is the craziest idea we ever came up with as human beings <laughs> because our bodies aren't meant to sit at a desk and look at computer screens, you know. They're designed to move and to, Amen. you know, yeah, <laughs> definitely. That's why, I, that's why I spent the day fixing a lock and <laughs> some you know, other more physical things because I was like, nah, yep. not today. Uh, to be honest, my mental acuity is not 100% anyway. I've got a bit of a cold at the moment, which right. people might be able to hear through the yeah. uh, my voice, but I just wasn't able to focus well on my computer. And I thought, well, why sit here and pretending to be focusing on my computer when <laughs> I could do something physically worthwhile? Yeah, um, brilliant. I, th- I think you're wise to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a crazy, crazy way we've interpreted how humans should live on this planet. You know, to have someone who's married and they have children, to have both of them working and, and, you know, that's just insane, actually. A lovely lady who's just started here called Paula who's doing marketing here. And she's now doing a three-day working week. And and also I met her husband the other day, John, and he's looking looking to go back a bit into full-time, but he's going to sort of suss it out. So he's a young couple in their 30s, actually, who are – really switched on in my opinion they know that that's not what life's about work is not the be all and end all money is not the be all and end all it's about quality of life and the quality of life with their children as well so you know that's heartening that people in their 30s are thinking that i find because you know that's that's a more realistic and um life enhancing way of seeing you know our workaday world sure yeah. Well, if everybody agreed to pull back like that, the, the the economics of the world would have to equate to that. Yep. The market would sort it out. And it if the would. entire market said, no, we're not doing that anymore and we can't afford that as a consequence, then the price of things would have to come down to match what people could afford exactly. instead of us having to sell our souls to try and keep up with the things we can't afford. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely, it's, yeah. It's definitely around the wrong way. It is. But I've got a feeling it's going to adjust one day. I feel like there's a change in the wind where these, say like Ruth, my niece, there's these small-scale um, farmers. Which she's not a farmer's market, but they're happening as well. But these small-scale um, businesses. And through her, I've got to be in contact with people who are, you know, in northern Victoria. There is a lovely young couple, 30s, 40s maybe, 
they're growing their own wheat, rye, barley, and they're milling it and selling the flour. Right. And it, I have to say, I haven't tried flour like that in years, yep. or maybe never, I can't remember. But anyway, definitely not for a long time. It is such a step above store-bought flour. So there's a lot of this happening, and we don't hear about it all unless we're kind of into the plugged into the network a little bit. But people are changing at a grassroots level, especially the way our food comes to us and uh, how we can purchase it. Actually, I saw something that did hearten me a little bit in the supermarket last weekend. There was apples and they were packaged apples, but they were packaged in a small cardboard little carry bag great. Uh, rather than plastic. And yeah, that's so, great. And I think they were uh, 30 cents dearer for five apples or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. We, we chose those ones to just try and encourage yes. encourage them. It's like, wow, look at that, no plastic. I mean, yeah. You could probably just put that straight in the compost bin and yeah. turn it into an apple. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's sure. Good. And it's good that more people like you guys, we're seeing this now. Mm. So it's happening. So uh, we kind of touched on the fact that you are here, that you've had some recent activity and I know you've had a weekly conversations series that's been running. How have you been enjoying that? Would you mind sharing sure. with the listeners a little bit about King and the intention behind that? Yeah, so... Justin uh, mentioned to me before I came over that some friends had done a similar thing, which is looking at um, some of the emissary literature, but also seeing how that correlates with other literature, like for I've used Ram Dass. Who was the other one I used the other day? Mandela. I think I used a little bit of Mandela last week. Tiknatan. Tiknatan. Yeah, could. So just incorporating also these teachings of other great people within this one and a half hours that we have on a Thursday from 12 to 1.30. And it's been really useful for me particularly just to go back into looking at some of the older emissary literature as well and see how how really does this correlate when it was written back in the 50s, genuine spiritual literature. If, if we can get to the core of it, the essence of it is not dissimilar to somebody else whose writings are spiritual, you know, from a, you know, like Buddha and Mohammed and, you know, some of the beautiful poets, Rumi, Hafiz, who I really like. So, yeah, so, so, so Thursdays are sharing that and it's a very organic time. It's never uh, the same people all the time, but uh-huh. it's some of the same people some of the time. Yep. <laughs> and, um, and it's sharing the sharing the readings and then talking about it. So see what you know what sort of percolates and pops up into each person's thoughts around what we've read, and then an opportunity to share that, which then also helps other people. It's a bit like a dialogue in that sense. You know, there's no judgment or right or wrong or anything within that one and a half hours. There's an opportunity to hear things, see how that sits in one's own consciousness, and then allow that to yep. to speak to that. And it's a it's a lovely opportunity, you know, share that sort of space with others. Yeah, I like the fact that uh, you could hear you could hear different perspectives on the same the same thing, which might stimulate new thoughts in yourself or or uh, lock in the thoughts that you already had. Is like, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. It doesn't make sense to me, but um, <laughs> yeah. but it's it, but it's nice to hear that variety of of thoughts yeah. because sometimes they're radically different to the ones that I'm having. It's mm. interesting just to gain more perspectives. Yeah, thank you. It's yeah. good to do actually. Yeah, it'd be nice to continue it. I think. 
And you were considering maybe continuing it via Zoom in the future? Yes. And if we can keep it happening, that's what we'd like to do. We're just yeah, going to great. look at that over the next two weeks while I'm here yep. and just see that we can maintain that and uh, keep it going. Yeah. Sure. Be lovely. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, Shane, would you mind sharing with us a little bit how you came to be here at all in terms of not how you literally came to be here, but yeah, we yeah. could probably work that out, journey, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how you came to be at Riverdale, um, how you were first introduced to Riverdale, Sure. go back as far as you, you feel happy in going to tell us about that story. Sure. Thank you. So um, I was about 27 and had always had an inclination to leave Australia. Sure. <laughs> so did my wife. Yeah, for some right. reason. Yeah. I just followed her. Yeah. <laughs> I never really had a personal ambition to, it hadn't really crossed my mind to want to go traveling the world. Not really. Oh, wow. But Sarah had this burning desire and I was like, well, if you're going, I'll go with you. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I'm glad that I did. Yeah. Mm. It's, it was good that you did. So I, I um, went through, oh, how far back do you go? Anyway, uh, education-wise, I did speech therapy initially okay. and then felt that that wasn't quite my calling and then I went to art school and completed art school and during my last year when I was doing my final year at undergraduate, I ran a second-hand store like a, sure. in Woolloomooloo in Sydney um, which was the old Cobb & Co stagecoach building. Right. So it had all slate floors and, and I used to go with a – big pickup truck to the um, auction sales and buy stuff and sell it. And then I'd have all the antique dealers yep. from Oxford Street in Sydney come down and buy it off me because then I'd sell it really cheap so I could go back and get more. Yep. <laughs> so that was... And then they'd go sell it really expensive so they could buy more. I exactly, assume. yes. That's exactly how <laughs> it worked. Yeah. With that, I was able to buy the ticket and save some money and... As soon as I completed studies, I had my ticket overseas, one-way ticket, and I figured I'll just earn some money while I'm overseas to get back. So (laughs) I left Australia, spent eight weeks in Asia. Can I ask, uh, when you were at uh, art school, did you have a particular discipline of art that was your interest? Yeah, photography and weaving. Okay. So when I left Australia, the idea was to go to Denmark to do postgraduate weaving because right. I'd met a woman in Sydney actually that did the most amazing weavings, huge weavings that would go into the foyers of um, commercial buildings in Sydney and I thought, oh, oh, sure. I want to learn more about that. Did about eight weeks in Asia, hitched up through Malaysia and Thailand and then flew out of Bangkok to Rome, got to Rome, was there to meet up with some friends from Sydney. So I, when I was in Rome, I forwarded all my money across to the Bank of Roma, but I think I got in about 8 o'clock at night and, of course, nothing, well, nothing at the airport anyway was open or, or whatever relative to financial stuff. So I got talking to somebody at the carousel where I picked up my um, suitcase. He was over there to meet up with his wife and daughter who were skiing up in... Somewhere up near Florence is some sort of ski field up there. Sure. We got chatting and I said oh, I was going to Rome and he said, oh, do you want to share a cabin? I'll, and how would, how would, you know, when you're young you do the craziest. Well, you don't do crazy things. You just do what's right for when you're young. Have you stopped? <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> I'm 
I'm not sure. I don't think I have. <laughs> anyway, um, so Susan, who was the person I was going to meet in in Rome, we when she'd left to go over, she was a friend in Sydney. When she'd left to go over, she said, "Oh, look, I'll just meet you at the Trevi Fountain on the 27th of." whatever it was, October or whatever. And I said, oh, okay, cool, cool. I should be able to get there by then with my time in Asia and that. Anyway, so I arrive in Rome and we went by taxi to the Trevi Fountain and there's about five little pensiones there that you can stay at. And so we sort of went to each of them and no sign or sound of Susan at all. I don't know what I expected, but anyway. And so his name was Montague Pentompkin. He was a, I do remember that name. Yeah, I thought you might That's if I said it. a fantastic name. <laughs> so he, he was staying in this amazing 14th century Louis XIV um, hotel, which is – I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, it's in, in Rome. And um, he just said, well, look, why don't we go back, see if we can get a room for you there, and um, then we can go tomorrow. I'll give you a hand and we'll see if we can locate uh, a bank first and then uh, Susie. Anyway, so – I did that and kind of blew my mind, these sort of ceilings that were like, you know, two stories high and incredible um, decor and stuff. Did that and found they did have a spare room, so I got a little room and then we hooked up again in the morning and went to the Banca de Roma and my finances. I don't think they'd arrived that day, but they did eventually in the next few days. Why they? And they didn't arrive because what he suggested was – why don't you stay in Rome for a few days? I've got to go up to Florence and I'd appreciate the company. We can go and visit the Vatican and oh, wow. do a few different things like that. And he'd, yeah, so I said, oh, okay, <laughs> what else am I going to do? So anyway, so we ended up doing that. So that was great. And then on the final day of him, I think he was going the next day, I just had a gut feeling to go back to the Trevi Fountain. So we went back and did the circuit again. And there was a letter there from Susan and they were in Florence. So <laughs> so I ended up travelling up to Florence with uh, Montague and it was amazing. Even back in 1977, the trains were just incredible. Yeah. These big yeah. open windows and you're sitting there with a glass of white wine and pasta and yeah. stuff. 27-year-old, it was pretty amazing. We got there, I hooked up with my friends, he hooked up with his family and then we spent New Year's Eve together uh, going out for pizza, Great. the whole, all of us in the end. So that was a kind of interesting story. Yeah, beautiful. So emissary-wise. Um, so while I was in Rome, there was a conference being held there called the First Congress of the New Age. And I'd been, I'd met up with a chiropractor who was actually Australian for, with Italian heritage. He um, had gone to England and some friends of his were coming to visit, so I was able to get the key and prepare the place for them to come to. And they'd come over to talk at this conference. Uh, Lindsay was an interesting guy. He was a multi-multi-millionaire, and he'd sold everything, his restaurants, his business, because he felt that people needed to do a bit more on the planet about saving the planet. So he'd tried to start a community on an island called Iona off the west coast of Scotland, probably almost parallel to Fintorn. So Fintorn was here and – or not parallel but on the same uh, latitude. So they'd come over. They'd been invited over to talk at this first congress of the New Age. It had all these spiritual people there and Mm -hmm. 
no agenda because that wasn't spiritual to have an agenda. No, sure. <laughs> Just let it flow, man. Yeah, let it flow, man. That's right. <laughs> um, and in fact, uh, one guy who was there was um, oh, Seven Chains to Heaven. Who wrote that? Buckminster Fuller. So Buckminster Fuller was an amazing architect who had a spiritual, definite spiritual energy to his architecture and him. And he is a man. He was really well. He was the one who looked at the triangle being the ultimate shape of creation and how it's so much better than triangles or uh, not triangles than uh, rectangles or squares. Yes. And he had these little bits of stick. He was at this conference and they were held up with little rubber things at the end and you'd put it in your hand and you'd hold one side of the rectangle and, of course, it would flop and one side of the square, it would flop. Hold the triangle yep, and it would stay in place. And he was the one that developed geodesic domes. Okay. So geodesic domes. I know the ones. Yeah, you know, triangles, yeah. So it was a great experience and the emissaries through these two people, uh, Lindsay Rawlings and Maura McLaughlin were there. So I got to know about the emissaries through them and and how their life had transitioned from my owner into the emissary, emissaries of divine light. So that's when I first heard about them and um, I sort of sidetracked my trip to Denmark and flipped over to England instead so uh, so when I was in London, um, a man called Martin Cecil had been in South Africa with an entourage of people who was coming back through, a crazy guy called Bill Bain who was a chiropractor out of this grouping. So this was around 79, no, 77, 78. Was. Uh-huh. Yeah, so they were all coming back through. So I went to hear them and I thought, ah, oh, yeah, he's okay. I can't quite relate to this guy, Martin, but the other guy I could relate to. Yeah. He was pretty much out there, big bold kind of guy that he had a lot of really good expressions that elude me at the moment. But anyway, Bill Bain was his name. So that's when I first heard about the emissaries and... And then chiropractic was more controversial than it is now? um, Chiropractic's always had a bit of an edge to it, especially with the medical profession. Um, In the States, I think it was probably more accepted than it than it was way back. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's interesting that you're underhooked up with chiropractors. I mm-hmm. find that quite fascinating, actually, because mm-hmm. in some ways chiropractic is still fringe. My, My bra- understanding, the guy who invented chiropractic before before inventing chiropractic as a practice yeah. was into magnet yeah, therapy. Mag- yeah. So maybe that's where there's the, the energy, you don't know, the no touch, the penetration of energy... Yeah, perhaps that's where there's some sort of overlap. Overlap there that was like, oh, you're into energy type stuff too. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, I think you're right. The the mesmerism it was called, okay. which was um, magnetic forces, using that as an adjustment in. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that came up too when we were doing the thing in Saturday attunement okay. workshop. That was a phase that came out too back in the early 1900s. Sure. I think in early 1900s would have been an amazing melting pot, actually, yeah. for a lot of ideas that were sort of percolating up, you know, in people's consciousness and thoughts or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, Bill Bain. So, yeah. So, then with the emissaries for me, I 
you know, I was kind of fringy for a long while actually, just, oh, yeah, this is interesting stuff. And and then I sort of got more involved in it, did some of the workshops. There was a two-week workshop at Buxted in, in uh, England. A lot of people came over from the States for that, a lot of people from Africa. And also, oh, that was where, okay, so Greenpeace, okay. So I got involved with Greenpeace because I worked in a restaurant called Food for Thought in Covent Garden. And they used to give food to the uh, people on the Rainbow Warrior, Greenpeace right. people. Yep. And so we got talking and a lot of stories because I'd been on a – I'd sailed to New Zealand with some people before I left Australia. From from Australia to New Zealand? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. How well, long did that take? It took us 11 days. Oh, that's quicker than I would have thought. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, we were becalmed actually, so yep. it was probably a bit slow, but yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, we went to Lord Howe Island and then – over to New Zealand from there. How big was the boat? A uh, 52-foot catch wow. Yeah, with square sails. Uh, well, oh, that's cool. It was very cool. Yep. It was made in New Zealand, actually. Anyway, so the Greenpeace people had heard that I'd had some um, sailing experience and they'd just come back from a campaign. That actually, it was the first campaign of the Rainbow Warrior up in Iceland, so yes. they were clubbing seals. So yep. people went up to spray the seals, so that the coats would not be able to be used. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, they'd had a pretty three months up in the cold up there, pretty and wild. Pretty wild, and yeah, pretty miserable. And a lot of people left the boat. The boat sailed down to Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it was in Dublin. Anyway, I got this. I'm. S- there in the restaurant serving food to people, and I got this call, and someone said, "Shane, there's a phone call." And yeah, what? <laughs> anyway, they wanted to know if they could pay me to go and join the boat yep. and do some cooking on the boat for them because they didn't have a cook anymore, and sure. they had to go to Spain and stuff like that. Yep. So I sort of said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> it sounds less uh, daunting than Iceland. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> Spain? Should we go to Spain? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that I could have gone to Iceland. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, I, I probably would have actually. They they had, uh, <laughs> if I'm correct, they faced some some serious danger and uh, sort of mild violence from the people, the hunters and things. Is that right? They did. Yeah. yeah. There was a lot of a lot of stuff happening. I anyway, that's a whole nother story. But I, I watched the video, which is really worth seeing uh-huh. about the history of um, Greenpeace. Yep. And yeah, they. I hadn't realised. You know the guy who sea shepherd. Yes. He was one of the main guys on the Rainbow Warrior. Okay. I met him. I can't even remember him. Yep. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. So um, so then, yeah, so I joined. So I had, you know how often in your life you two things will come up. Mm-hmm. You can do this or you can do this. Yep. And there's this incredible dilemma. It happens a lot, I found, when I was younger. That happens to me every time I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> I could stay here or I could get up. <laughs> well, I've often found that I'll be given two opportunities, not, not so much now, but back when I was younger, two opportunities, and both of them are incredibly appealing. Sure. And it's like, oh, my gosh, which one am I going to go for here? Yep. So at this point in time, I'd had an offer to go down to the south of London and to participate in what the emissaries called an art of living event or join the rainbow warrior in dublin uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like oh i rainbow warrior okay sure <laughs> but then when i was on the boat it was such a discordant group of people that were left on the boat they were bickering and oh, really? carrying yeah. on and you know fair enough they'd probably 
had a rough time. Anyway, I, I joined the boat. I went to Spain and we had that example in the sea with Derek's um, atomic waste being dropped into the ocean and we were in zodiacs underneath them. Yeah, wow. I, I might have mentioned that too. And then um, we got to Spain and I just thought, I need to be back in England. Yep. <laughs> so I jumped ship and caught a flight back to England and I hitched down to the south of, London, south of England and I arrived on the day the event started. <laughs> and it was great. There were a huge number of people from all over Europe, from Palestine, from Israel, Jewish people from Israel, African people, uh, Dutch. There was a woman from Holland and, and it was just great. So that was an opportunity to experience some of the training of the emissaries offered back then, yep. the art of living. And it was a living event, so we were there for a week. Can you, can you recap sort of some of the, the more practical aspects of what that art of living might in, entail? Okay. Sorry to put you on the spot. No, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> trying to remember. I can give you a story about one of the things that we enacted. Sure. Which is going to sound kind of childish, but there is a message in it. Yep. So there was an old Indian story about jumping mouse. Have you ever heard this story? I don't believe so. Okay. So jumping mouse came from a small tribe of mice and... They'd always lived in this one particular area their whole lives and, you know, things were okay and everything was sort of puddling along quite well. But this little mouse, he had a hankering for something else and he used to jump up and he could see this big mountain when he jumped and he wanted to go and explore but everybody told him, no, come on, you can't do that. That's crazy. Oh, man, don't you don't do know that. what's out there. You could die out there. Yep. Anyway, he listened to everybody and he decided, well, maybe I shouldn't. But his urge was just too strong. He just had to go and find out what, what, what all this was that uh-huh. wasn't around him in the little village. Anyway, so one morning he gets up early and he takes off. And then on his travels... He runs into coyote. So obviously it's an American Indian story. He runs into coyote and he's just so overwhelmed. He's never seen anything so beautiful as this coyote, this beautiful animal. And he walks up to him and coyote's kind of crying and looking pretty unhappy. And Jumping Mouse says, well, what's wrong with you? And coyote says, I've injured myself. I, I can't walk very well anymore. And Jumping Mouse says, but you're such a beautiful animal. You, you, you should be able to help you. And he says, the only thing that will help me is the right eye of a mouse. So, so Jumping Mouse thinks, oh, well, you know, I've got two eyes. I could, you know, let one go. And Generous. as soon as he says it, <laughs> it goes out and Coyote's healed. Right. So what happens next is um, he has to go across the plains so it's pretty open, little mouse running around on the plains. That's big dinner for anything flying overhead. So Coyote says, well, if you like, I can take you to the edge of the mountain. And Jumping Mouse says, well, thank you. He says, well, just hop under me and we'll walk together. So they do. They walk up to the edge of the mountain and and then Coyote says goodbye and thanks Jumping Mouse for what he offered. So Jumping Mouse starts to climb up to the mountain because he wants to get to the top of the mountain. And on his way up, and a similar situation occurs and the animal requires 
the left eye of the mouse. And, of course, Jumping Mouse thinks, well, you know, this is such a beautiful animal. What, what else could I do but give him my eye? And, and he does. Mm-hmm. As he says it, his left eye leaves <laughs> and the animal is healed. And then the animal takes him up to the top near the mountain to a big lake area. And Jumping Mouse is now blind and he leaves him by the lake there. And he's just sitting there and he hears this great almighty whoosh. And the next thing he knows, he's uplifted and he's soaring and he opens his eyes and he can see the whole world below him. He's become transformed into the eagle. Okay. So I told that story because it was a major part of the teachings. There's a lot of things in there you could pull out of it, even Buddhist things about letting go, suffering, the whole lot. But the thing is, if we're capable of being able to move past the things that hold us back, our wants, our desires, our whatever they want to call them, there is the potential for being transformed. And transformation is new eyes and new vision. So that was kind of, in a nutshell, the essence of this Art of Living seminar that I went to back in 1978. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and it was obviously compelling and meaningful to you because 40 40 years later, (laughs) not only do you remember it, but you're still an active member of that community and, and now you've become the teacher. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to work out the worst way to say that. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Sort of like from, from the student, 40 years later, you, you've still maintained and I, I'm guessing you've kind of integrated those lessons into your own life and yeah. now sharing it to, with others. Yeah, thank you. It's true. I hadn't kind of really thought about it. I haven't told that story for a long time. Mm. Yeah, it, there's been a lot of activities in between time I've I've taught Art of Livings in Africa, I've taught them in Colorado, I've taught them here. But also as things over the years too, things have changed and morphed and, well, in the same way as that story has, you know, the even with the emissaries too. And this goes back to what we started with originally. The essence in teaching doesn't change. The, the essence is always real and true, I guess. Mm-hmm. However, the forms will change and... Definitely, the emissary is no different to any other organisation. The forms have changed considerably, actually, over time. You know, from 13 communities globally, it's now three. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a big change. Yeah. And, you know, the... If someone picks up the literature of the 50s from the emissaries, it's 70 years ago, it was given in a particular way back then because the people who were around had a particular perception of their world and how it functioned. And it's a bit old hat in many ways in the format that it's been written in. But the essence of what's in there, if, if it's easy to kind of move past just the format to the essence, then nothing's changed in that sense since, you know, back 2000 BC to, yep. you know, all that stuff. Yeah. That's interesting. Anyway, yeah. No? <laughs> that kind of gets us to now. Sort of. Then I, then I went to America and did a two-month living class. I lived in two communities for a while. And then I went down to Sunrise Ranch for a month, which I mentioned earlier. And then I came back to Australia here. And I'd had the experience of seeing communities in their – oh, what could you – overseas, they had the money to create – state-of-the-art community. When I was in um, 
Hundred Mile House, which is about eight hours north of Vancouver, this beautiful community with like 135 people living there and solar buildings. This is back in the 70s, yeah, late, late 79. The buildings were heated by the sun. They were beautiful. And the kitchen was amazing. You know, it, the dining room kitchen were together. And then downstairs from the kitchen, they had these root cellars with dirt, you walk into the root cellar and on either side is a tiered area with dirt in there and carrots growing. This yep. is in the middle of winter. Yeah. And cool rooms and... Did they have light, special lighting or was it just growing in the dark? Or? It was growing in the dark. You turn the light off, come in, grab a few carrots, walk out and turn the yep. light off. Yeah. Yep. So I came back to Australia thinking that's what the emissaries were doing in Australia. Eh, it wasn't the case. Sure. <laughs> So I met some of the emissaries in Sydney who were doing a talk when I first arrived back in Australia in the 80s, 1980. And they said, oh, come on, you know, come over. It would be great to have you and blah, 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 all that. You can run a cafe at the Caravan Relocatable Home Park end. And I thought, oh, that's a nice idea. Yeah, yeah, I could do that. Anyway, so I got here and arrived and the dining room was the garage with a concrete floor and... School, wooden school chairs that you dragged across the floor and made a lot of noise and the kitchen was a oh anyway it was an old domestic kitchen in the where the kitchen is now but way different to that because that was the main house on this property at that time it was just like a normal 1960s kind of kitchen layout yeah there was about 47 people living here back then mm. about 12 of those were kids or children below the age of what maybe 10 so quite a lot of young people were here as part of that. And it was pretty raw and rustic and a lot of fun. Frontier, <laughs> the frontier. It was. It was the frontier of community living in Australia. Yeah. And a lot of the people here were hippies, you know, long-haired guys and girls. Well, girls were long-haired anyway, but mm. a lot of single mums. Well, not a lot. A number of single mums with their children. Because mm. that, the, uh, that was something that we spoke about the, the first time we had this conversation. Yeah. I uh, was... My perception of what it might have looked like, and I guess by the 80s, you know, that that sort of full-on flower power hippie movement had dissipated largely. But I always had this vision of it being a bunch of hippies kind of living here. But then the photographs would tell another sta- story if you, if you didn't know better. You know, looking at the photographs, everyone typically is wearing shirts and often ties and oh, a pair of slacks and <laughs> good pants, you know. Yeah. Everyone seemed like they were dressed for church or... I think they were the Sunday photos. <laughs> it could maybe that's... Yeah, that was the only time the photos were taken. But yeah, it, it's like the, the mental picture that I ended up creating was a different one yeah, yeah. To, to the one that you've told. No, they were definitely hippies back then. Yeah. Yeah, so late 70s, early 80s, yeah. Yeah, people did get dressed up because that was what they did in the States. So we kind of copied that. Yeah. And I understand just Australian culture as well. Then my dad came from Glasgow with my mum and he was shocked when he arrived in, I think it was maybe 1972. He'd come from, you know, Hendrix and all this and he arrived here and it was the Skyhooks and John Farnham and and everyone was still wearing a suit to go to the cinema. And he's like, what the hell? It's like 1940s. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was just culturally part of Australia's culture as well at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I think Australia did did lag behind. A little. <laughs> a little, yeah. It still does. Possibly. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> sure. 
Yeah, so that's true actually, yeah. Mm. But during the workaday week, people would be, you know, dressed in jeans and... Yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah, all that kind of stuff and just out. We had uh, roster systems here because there were quite a number of us. So I would work sometimes in the office. I'd be doing accounts. Then I'd be in the afternoon. I'd be in the kitchen. Next day I'd be doing laundry. Next day I'd be up the front end running the office for the business. So there was this kind of flexible roster that we kind of worked with and we you know make those every few weeks and people are you know we'd go up and we'd have a roster system for cleaning the men men and female amenities at the other end yep. so just keep it more interesting than just having one role constantly exactly so yep. we, we flexed a lot yeah yeah what was the um you might not be able to answer this but what was the was there a goal like was there something like a bigger picture goal in mind when this was going on or was just the creation of this community was the, the purpose? Got, yeah. No, I think there was always, because we had an association with the Emissaries of Divine Light, there was always a goal to offer that into the community. Um, we ran a lot of classes, like a lot of classes, yep. yeah, and um, workshops. So they were happening on a continual basis almost. Um, there was always Sunday service and... You know, to build or generate the substance around here, there was always something happening. There were men's and women's groups. There was a choir. We had a fantastic choir here. There was a lot of, um, what do you call it, arts. There was a lot done with the arts, drama, music. So it was very generative in that way. Uh-huh. And I think, yeah, to answer your question, the main goal was to provide something of what the emissaries were offering to a bigger audience yep. as much as we could. Yeah. And, but, you know, and... I guess in parallel to that, there was also um, a desire to create a beautiful home here to have something to bring others into um, and sustainability and agriculture, you know. I mean, we we started several gardens here and it just, I don't know, never, our gardens never seemed to, I think it just needed somebody with a passion. Yeah. And yep. it didn't have the, gar- we didn't have a garden passion person. Yeah. <laughs> a GPP. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. So I that, think that it's fairly trying conditions in it is. in Hillier to get a beautiful garden going because it yeah. in the summertime it's so dry. I can imagine particularly for a for a group of people who at the time you know things were pretty austere to to be over investing in that sort of stuff would have been a challenge. Yeah, just yeah. in its own right. Well, the good thing though was we always had the passive income from the business. Sure. Yep. So even though we ploughed money back into it to develop the growth of up there. Mm-hmm. Um, we always worked with a budget that allowed us to have some money that would, you know, then like the, it's funny because you, you're here and ran, managing it, but we never ran at a profit in that sense in terms of putting on events here. Mm. So that's a kind of old paradigm on this property. Yeah. Yeah, right. Hard one to shift. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we'll get there, I'm yep. sure. Yeah. But that was how we saw it back then too, that the business would always be the passive income to support the community at the back end. And we never saw it any other way back then. Sure. Yeah, but we obviously ran a lot, lot more courses than what the emissaries are running at the moment. Mm. And we had, you know, there was good response, mm. a lot of people. But it's different. It's a different era too now. You know, there's different ways of doing things. Like I was saying before, you know, the way we market stuff and things like that. Anyway, yeah. So that's we've got to move with the with what's happening. I think. So. I think these days there is something. It, it it 
appears to me, however, that there is some innate desire for people to find terms of agreement in whatever that might look like. Yeah. And now, because of our, our natural tendency to want to find agreement with with people and find c- community, we've replaced the traditional place that, that a church maybe had where that was the source of agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes the agreement was on things that were almost unbelievable to, to the logical mind, yeah. which kind of deepens the agreement because yeah. it's like, hey, you agree that too? Man, yeah, there was a flood and Noah had his boat. It's like, you really agree? Yeah, we all agree. And it's, it's like that's a very locking in mechanism. Yes. Um, but because we don't have that so much in our society because now everything is so passed out to logic and then ultimately to science and, and explanations in that way, people are creating new versions of that same dynamic. But, yeah. but now it's things like, for some people it might be a particular video game they're into and they're religious about that video game yep. other people it would be their political stance you know they're particularly in america yep. it would seem they're almost religiously um democratic or yep. religiously republican yeah yeah and and similarly you know even here it might be um cycling or people are finding it and becoming really obsessed with their personal interests in a different way yeah true um in the 80s and even earlier than that there was still a tendency for people to find that sense of community uh, around church sure. um, as, as an obvious one. Yeah. Maybe sporting groups, but probably yeah, yeah. more likely church then. Yeah. And now we're in a, an environment where we're offering something of that nature, but there are so many options for people now to find that community that it, it's, it's, I think it's a, harder, yeah. it's a harder sell in some ways. Because because there's so much atomization of society. Because I remember even growing up, uh, you know, in the eighties, seventies and eighties, going to school, and there was a sense of similarity around just for something as trivial as what was on the TV. Because yeah. there were only three channels. Yes. <laughs> and so it, it was a commonality that you could go, oh, did you see blah 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 last night? Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, it's Saturday. Whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now with so many options available to people, you're like, oh, have you heard of this show? No, I haven't. It's, it's, it's getting harder to find common ground with people potentially. Yeah, yeah that's a really good um, point actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's why there is an increased openness to what we're offering because I feel like people are, are receptive or missing that element in their lives that is a human – it's part of our human condition yeah. to – seek something bigger than ourselves Um, and maybe for a period of time crossfit might provide it yes but at the end of the day i think it's it's ultimately not a sad not as satisfying as a belief in something larger yeah Um, Yeah. and so that's why i've got a a great amount of hope for the next 10 years in our ability to try and create continue to create and build on the existing atmosphere that invites that sort of questioning and thought process and yeah. actually beyond that experiencing and sensing yeah, beautiful. Um, something yeah. other. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's spot on actually what you're saying. I think um I think people are getting very dissatisfied to a degree anyway with external stuff. And that's where I think Saturday was really and we were looking at what does the person's the individual who came, you know, what's internal to them? You know, what's their essence that's adding to this? So 
I just reminded me something I'd love to I have to share it with you. I've been reading a book on Revelation. Okay. So Revelation is the last book in the Bible. Yep. So it's about the times of the apocalypse, I guess, and all that stuff, you know. And it's always kind of because it's so graphic in its imagery, I've always been fascinated, but I've never really looked at it before. Anyway, Martin Exeter did a whole book around it, and I've just been getting into that a little bit. And he talks about science and religion as being part of the same beast, <laughs> without getting too caught up in it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that so science sort of supplants religion in a sense, which is what you were saying and yep. how you were putting it. Oh, and, much smarter people than me came up with that. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> I just okay. repeated it. All right. Well, that, well, I think for our for our conversation, I think that's really good. That that that's accurate. I think, and I think. So I think people have got caught up in the external, no matter what it is. Mm. It's a place of safety to some degree, but at a certain point it becomes very hollow. Yeah, There's no no substance to it because the person's still seeking their own identity outside of themselves. Mm. And that doesn't work ultimately. I mean, people can go to the grave and it'll be a very hollow experience while they've been on the planet if that's all that they manage to be able to um, understand, I think. But I think having an awareness of our own capacity, and this goes back to where we started, of this vital essence Mm -hmm. that is connected to the all that is. You know, when I lived with the turtles, this is an example of this, when I lived with the turtles um, on Mon Repo, I was up there for a couple of weeks helping with research for the green turtle. I was doing a postgrad in botanical and wildlife illustration, so I was up there to do photographs. When we saw the turtles come up the beach to lay the eggs, I had this experience that as I watched her, she was laying her eggs and tears are running down her eyes because they get rid of the salt. Mm -hmm. By um, um, I felt no separation from that turtle. Mm -hmm. I was that turtle in that moment. Yep. And I think that's the reality of our oneness with this planet and with life on this planet. But it also requires our connection to something that's higher as well because that's the creation of it all, I guess. So, you know, how that translates for every individual is, you know, personal and for them to answer. Yes. But I think our oneness with life and our connection to source Mm-hmm. universal being, you know, whatever, God, whatever word we want to use, mm-hmm. that's our linkage into this oneness. And if we look for everything, we, we, if we block that off, that our connection to source, and we look outside of ourselves to try and find it in, you know, bigger cars and more money, or more relationships, what, you know, whatever, it's still looking externally to us, to our, I'm still looking externally for myself. And I think that it'll never work. That's my experience after 70 years on the planet. Yeah, yeah. You know, that won't work. So somehow I have to then find, for me individually, that reconnection to my source. You know, whether I... And I don't really think it matters whether a person finds it. I've just done a Vipassana retreat, in a, or a partial one anyway. And, you know, I even saw a lot of the correlation of that teaching with the emissary teaching. So there, there is... This essence I was talking about before, through all spiritual um, paths, that comes back to the same one thing. So if that connection to source is there and having that in place, then I do know my oneness with life. Yep. And I, then I'm contributing 
to something changing and transforming on the planet. Mm. Sounds big, but that's no, where it's at, I think. For sure. Well, if it's not going to be big, if it, go big or go home. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've kind of come into that realisation for myself. Yep. You know, I've been personally at Riverdale for six years now and the first few years I was just trying to work out was going to be required of me and how I could best perform those duties and, and um, serve to the best of my ability. I was kind of blinded to the opportunity that was actually right in front of me. And it's only just been very recently that the the true opportunity of the role that I have here at Riverdale and the association that I have, and the, I'm only just grasping what a unique and beautiful thing that is and that, uh, you know, I just really consciously don't want to squander it. Yeah. By getting caught up in in things that are actually at the end of it not that important yeah. when there is so much important stuff to be done. Yeah, right. So that's why I'm personally trying to think of ways and find ways that I can offer more than just an administrative role or or the the leadership role that I can offer to my staff and things like that. Yeah. And th- at the moment, the thing that I've come down to is that I've got a really burning ambition to offer some. Uh, introduction to meditation classes and maybe some online classes as well in that that field yeah and the reason that I'm so motivated to do that is because in my personal experience I've been meditating for maybe nearly 15 years or something fairly consistently not every single day but yeah. most days yeah and I didn't do that with any particular intention in mind but there has been a natural consequence mm-hmm. from that practice and the reason I, I want to introduce that, offer that more, is because I feel like it has given me a deeper connection with myself and ultimately my true self, which is the one. Yep. And I feel like if I can help people to just sit and practice, that without any other guidance, they could come to those conclusions for themselves and have that experience for themselves. Yeah, beautiful. And I feel like it's going to be the most, it can become a lived experience for people rather than a, a theoretical yeah, good. experience. Yeah. And the other idea I have around it is initially that introductory course is really going to be framed as a mindfulness practice because I think that that is so much more socially acceptable at the moment it's kind of trendy um, and it feels like it would be an easy on-ramp for people to go I'm doing a mindfulness practice no there's no woo-woo connected to that the science is in it's a powerful practice yeah Yeah. but I suspect that by by sitting in that practice people are going to start to unpeel the onion a little bit more and and kind of come to a more profound esoteric conclusion than they anticipate perhaps yeah, that's lovely. It's like an on-ramp. Because the, the thing that I've realised, um, which has softened my response to people, because I used to be quite a angry person. When I was in my teens and early 20s, I was susceptible to rage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess probably a lot of 20-year-olds were. But, but I wasn't a particularly measured individual, and I'd do reckless and random things often to my detriment detriment and others. And when I came to the conclusion that we are all one and that we are all expressions of natural laws unfolding and that I would be you if I was born with the same genetics and the same experiences and if all of those things unfolded, and that's what I am. Yeah. 
And when you realize that, it kind of can give you an opportunity to soften your response when things are like, what a... But then when you realize, well, you did that because you are in the natural expression of all of the things that led to this moment. It's no more your fault than anything else than that tree being there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm hoping that that in some way can expand out and have a have a profound effect on the way society treats each yeah. other ultimately yeah well I think the lovely thing with you initiating that at this period in time is people are coming or will be coming with a more of an open heart and not as many preconceived ideas to some degree anyway it'll play out as it plays See out it yeah. <laughs> but that's the possibility of this era now you know we talked about it's the dawning of the age of Aquarius and all of that. But everything's pointing to the fact that we've moved past the mental um, machinations of our you know, bright minds and we're moving into the era of the open heart. So I think bringing that sort of thing with the, your thinking about how that will evolve is more in line now with what's possible. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's great. My understanding is that you're you're anticipating coming back to Riverdale possibly in October, all of November and December. Okay. So yeah, so I'll be around and hopefully we do some more um, with attunement. Yes. Um, the people on Saturday were so keen to do. I mean, we just touched the tip of the tip of the iceberg of with attunement. There's so much more, and people are keen. So yep. it'd be great to offer more of it. Yeah, yeah and I'm sure it'll build. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, I think we'd better go. Um, Shane, I'm going to get hungry. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much. It's been great to have this time with you. Real pleasure again. And we didn't. I think we only touched on a couple of the same topics that we did the first time. So I'm sure there's a hundred more to, to discuss in That'd the future. That'd be great. I look forward to it. Thank you, Shane. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. See you, Justin. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.